you'll stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 46. This is God's word. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy may it be preached for you. You may be seated. And as we come to consider this portion of scripture, let us pray for God's help. Almighty God, we read this passage about a man deeply in need of Christ, and we find ourselves needing to resonate with that very point, that so often we don't have the eyes to see, even as we heard in Sunday school, this is the problem in the sinful world, that our eyes can't see the truth of the gospel. And we need you to restore them. And so we ask, here and now, that you would make us like Bartimaeus, eager, calling out all the more for Jesus Christ. And help us to respond to what Jesus does for people who come to him, just like Bartimaeus, that we follow him. Overcome the deficiencies of the preacher, they are many. And bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word to bring forth fruit in our hearts, to love you more, to serve you better. And we ask it all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I wonder if you've ever sent an email 
uh, getting that automated response in return. Due to the volume of messages I receive, I may not reply to you. Uh, And although sometimes, sometimes, the intent is to let you know that you're not being intentionally ignored, that best efforts will be made, uh, most of the time, that sort of message suggests that, well, I'm just not important enough to warrant attention amidst all the other more important people who ought to be heard before I am. And this sort of thing, oddly, happens most often when we try to write to a, a public servant of some kind. It, it will be hard for, to get through, for example, to, to a congressman, uh, even though our taxes pay their salaries and they're supposed to work for our advantage. In, in a different sphere, if you think you can just uh, shoot an email to your favorite, you know, join a, a megachurch and shoot an email to your superstar pastor and that he'll respond, well, you're, you're mistaken, if you can even get his contact info. There's a mindset that the more important you are, the more right you have to ignore others. The higher your credentials or your level of power, the more you're required to pay attention only to other important people. In Mark 10, 46 to 52, we see how Jesus' admirers and seemingly his disciples too thought that God's kingdom was supposed to work in basically the same way. Jesus had reached the top tier of cultural attention after all and some around him thought that meant that he should have a, a firewall against the little people. After all, their hopes for the Messiah, well, focused on overturning the whole cultural order to free them from Roman governance and to reinstate the sort of society that they wanted. And how important could Caesar be if he actually had time to hear from peasants? Granted, in a different time, how pivotal would Genghis Khan have been if he had space for the menial affairs of his empire. You apply it to every major leader and people think the same way. But Jesus pushes back on that sort of mindset. Mark's gospel is about who Jesus is and what his kingdom is like. And this passage sheds more light on Christ's kingdom, namely showing Christ's love for the lowliest people, so to make them part of his kingdom. The the previous two sections in this book have recounted instances where Jesus was reorienting the disciples to show how the ethics of his kingdom really work. They were dumbfounded when Jesus stiff-armed the rich young man Making the point that only trusting in Christ rather than any of our worldly clout will gain 
entry and citizenship into God's kingdom. The disciples showed, well, their remaining confusion as they missed the entire point of Jesus' third prediction of his death and resurrection, responding by asking for or wishing, for those who didn't speak up, wishing that they had asked for pride of place in Christ's kingdom once he took his throne, which they expected to be local and outwardly glorious in Jerusalem. And in our passage, we find Jesus continues his march toward Jerusalem for the epic culmination, in some ways, of his incarnate mission. This this healing of, of blind Bartimaeus is the last healing miracle in Mark's gospel. But this miracle ties up an important aspect concerning the whole nature of God's kingdom as it relates to the world and to its citizens. The main point is that Jesus makes room in his kingdom for those who shouldn't belong. Jesus makes room in his kingdom for those who shouldn't belong. And our three points today are Jesus' consideration, Jesus' compassion, and Jesus' conquering. Let's think first about Jesus' consideration. So what's going on in Mark 10, 46 to 52? I mean, the basic scope of events is that Jesus travels through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem and, and heals a blind man named Bartimaeus. But we can, and that's, that's fairly straightforward. But we can start to reflect upon why these events are significant for our understanding of the story of Christ and why we need to know about these events to form our discipleship. So there are uh, several, but two that we'll focus on, two contrasts at work in the scope of these verses. And the first contrast is about how, how this set of events fits into the bigger story of, of Mark's gospel. So, so we might remember uh, back in Mark 8, 22 to 26, that Jesus healed another blind man then. And in that case, he, he healed the blind man in stages. Right? He, he spit on the man's eyes, and then he put his hands on his eyes. Uh, but his, after that first time, his sight was still blurry. And so Jesus touched his eyes again to bring him to full sight. And that event preceded the disciples' confession. Kind of, the, in some ways, the high point, the climax, uh, or, or the turning point, not the climax, the, the turning point of Mark's gospel, where the disciples confess Jesus as the Christ. Their eyes had been opened. They could see some of it. But as is still obvious, they, they couldn't see all of it. 
which is why Jesus needed to keep teaching them about his kingdom. And here, Jesus heals another blind man, f- forming the, the, the back bookend uh, to Jesus' efforts to, to bring the disciples to increasingly clear sight of who he is and what his kingdom is like. It's not that they didn't have more to learn, of course, but, but this event stamps the end of, of Jesus' teaching about what will happen directly before he goes uh, and does what he came to do. So he's been telling them what will happen. And in chapter 11, actually, and I, I suppose we should note that uh, when I come back from General Assembly, we're having a, our, our stretch of, of seven weeks leading up to the change to, to weekly communion. Um, and so when we come back to Mark's gospel in a number of of weeks, we'll pick up in chapter 11, the triumphal entry, the beginning of doing what he's been telling them he would do. Uh, so the need for this lesson here, the need for this lesson here, is because we see a, a contrast still between the disciples' notion of the kingdom and how Jesus implements his kingdom. And this contrast, I think, actually comes out really profoundly circling around how Jesus asked the same question in back-to-back events. What is it that you want me to do for you? In verses 35 to 45, uh, James and John had requested this blank check to ask Jesus for anything, and I, I think if we read the room, so to speak, we can sort of understand his response slightly more tentatively in that situation. What do you want me to do for you before I say yes? And when they ask to have a place in glory on either side of Christ's throne, Jesus said, Well, it's not his to give. Mainly seeing that because they asked for a way to have power, not to have a place to serve, which is what God's kingdom is like and what the king of God's kingdom is like. And here, in our events around Bartimaeus, well, Bartimaeus finds himself rebuked for wanting to go to Jesus. Jesus' sort of self-appointed admin assistants, right, had sent him the email that because of the volume of demands for his attention, Jesus might not be able to reply. And on the, on the one hand, right, those self-appointed Admin assistants wanted to build the barrier of importance between the king and the subject who most needed the king, or at least who was most aware of his need for the king. And on the other hand, Jesus summoned Bartimaeus into his presence. No, no, that's the one I want. Bring him here. And so we find 
that in a contrast that in contrast to the disciples who who wanted Jesus to give them personal exaltation Bartimaeus knew that he needed Jesus it wasn't give me something that you know sounds nice it was relentless cries for mercy and when they tried to silence he said no no I know that I need the mercy of Jesus. You can't stop me from asking for this. Whereas some thought that Jesus was marching toward outward glory in his enthronement in Jerusalem, assuming the veneer of importance for those who measure up, Jesus shows that his kingdom is for those who are most needy. Those who realize that he is their only hope. And so this story upends expectations, showing that the least likely person for outward glory is the one who enters the kingdom to join Jesus on the way. Jesus' consideration for Bartimaeus shows us the true location of glory is not in cultural success, but in loving people. And that brings us to our second point. Jesus' compassion. Jesus' compassion. Uh, so we've thought about the first contrast, which is really the, the kind of um, defying of expectations that runs throughout Mark's gospel, comes to the fore yet again. And the second contrast here that we'll consider regards Jesus' demeanor, helping us see his deep love for his people. If we think back to previous events, particularly up in verse 32, Jesus was pressing Forward quickly. I mean, it's obvious that he's stridently headed for Jerusalem with forceful pace. His his steady stride toward Jerusalem amazed and even frightened his disciples. And as James and John came to ask uh, for him to share his glory with them, without without realizing the the suffering joined. To that, there is no indication in the midst of that, that that he slowed his pace to entertain their quest for outward exaltation. And in contrast to that focused progress toward Jerusalem, uninterrupted by others, uh, by un- uninterrupted by others' focus on outward success in particular. Jesus halted dead in his tracks for a blind man. I mean, after perceiving that others had rebuked Bartimaeus for calling out for mercy, for wanting to get to Jesus, verse 49, and Jesus stopped. midst full stride, on mission, 
unhindered by others, Jesus stopped and said, call him. I didn't really want to entertain what you guys had to say. Bring him to me. I'll hear that. And we see something of Jesus' infinite love in this event. As Jesus called Bartimaeus to him, he asked him, I think with a very different tone from how he asked the disciples, what do you want me to do for you? And, and the thing is, I think, and I think we need to note this, the thing is, as a blind man, Bartimaeus' need would have been obvious. The need was visible. Right? Even his journey navigating his way from, from sitting, begging for alms, throwing off his coat, the journey to Jesus, navigating through a crowd and all the things going on, getting into Jesus' presence would have made it clear that he couldn't see. And so, we have to wonder, why did Jesus still ask to hear his need? Because Jesus wants to hear from his people. Jesus is clearly making a point that he heals people and grants blessings according to his relationship with someone. He's not a magician. He's not a service provider that makes things into a transaction. He is Savior and Lord who has joy in the people who are united to him. This event ought to remind you that Jesus is interested in you. And it also teaches us about how we ought to think about prayer. I mean, so often we get the question, if God already knows what we need, why should we pray? And we have our answer here, don't we? Prayer isn't about informing God about what we need. Prayer includes that Christ is interested in you. In Christ, God asks a question about this man. Not because he needs that explanation to know what's wrong with Bartimaeus, but because he cares about this person. He's not going to fix the problem and wave it off. He's interested in Bartimaeus and knowing this man who knows his need for Christ's mercy. And so, believer, Christ isn't standing in heaven waiting to perform a quality inspection on your prayers before he decides if he will grant what you need. 
He wants you to pray because he cares about you. He speaks to you through his word. And he wants you to speak to him in prayer. Christ is not the governor who has no time to answer your email. He longs for the personal connection with you. Jesus' compassion shows in his attentiveness to his people, longing to relate to us at the personal level. And that brings us to our final point. Jesus is conquering. Jesus is conquering. It's noteworthy here that, that Bartimaeus, when he calls out to Jesus, refers to him as, as son of David. He's, he's the heir to David's lineage, the Davidic heritage of the throne. And in that regard, the phrase son of David was a messianic title. And so this event has serious significance to tell us about Christ's work. Now, when we thought about Mark 8 and that earlier event of of healing the blind man, we we considered passages like uh, Isaiah 34, 4 and 5, where it says that the blind eyes will be open when God comes to save his people. So in Jesus, God has come to save his people, marking his divine identity by performing the deeds that God alone can do, giving sight to the blind, for example. Here, now, I mean, we've, we've already unpacked that significance previously. And so here, we're just noting it again, that Jesus opening the eyes of the blind teaches us about who he is. He's God come to save his people. But we can unroll something different this time. So Mark included Bartimaeus' exclamation of son of David twice to make us think about this event's significance and telling us about what his kingdom is like in a very particular way. So we, we read earlier 2 Samuel 5, 1 to 12. And there, David was anointed king at Hebron, uh, and then, later, was headed to Jerusalem to be enthroned in God's city. And on the way, his opponents stood in his way and declared, You will not come in here to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. Entailing that the blind were the obstacle that the king needed to overcome in order to take his throne. And so the Davidic king, the true Davidic king, has to remove the blind to get to his throne in Jerusalem. And as the ultimate Davidic king, Jesus was repeating David's march 
toward his throne. But here again, inverting the the expected meaning as he repeated it. Aligned, Aligned with the expectation, Jesus was pressing toward Jerusalem to claim his throne. Contrary to expectation, his throne would not be built on external political glory. The first way that he'd be lifted up for exaltation would be on the cross, where he won salvation for his people. His throne there and then was not of glory and grandeur, but was the glory of grace, which has a majesty beyond our ability to perceive unless our values are restructured by the gospel. And when David marched to Jerusalem, he took it by might. He overcame all those who stood in his way. He overcame the blind and the lame and was established as king in Jerusalem. Jesus marched to Jerusalem to establish his kingship as well and also overcame the blind on the way. But the difference is breathtaking. When David went to Jerusalem, he overcame the blind and prevented them from entering the city by defeating the persons. When Jesus went to Jerusalem, the blind didn't enter the city because he defeated blindness itself. And that points exactly to the way that he brings his kingdom to bear in the gospel. It is patently true, was known to everyone in Jesus' day, and ought to be clear in our minds that sinners, as such cannot be citizens in God's kingdom. Sin blocks us from God's presence. But the gospel is that Jesus doesn't remove every person who has sinned, but removes the sin from everyone who believes in him. Jesus' conquering happens by the power of grace. What happens in the narrative? Jesus prevented the blind from entering Jerusalem by taking away his blindness. Then the the formerly blind man followed him on the way. And it's the same thing that happens in the story of everyone who trusts in Christ. Jesus wins his kingdom victory by delivering people from whatever keeps them from going with him, from following him on the way. For sinners, Jesus went to Jerusalem and died on the cross to take away our sins. To forgive us. He died in our place 
taking our sin upon himself so that we could be righteous in God's sight and become citizens of God's kingdom because of Jesus Christ and his grace. And as forgiven people, we follow Jesus on the way. We find ourselves frustrated because so many leaders whose help we need tell us that they'll reply if, if they ever find the time to be interested in us among all the other important people who want their attention. What a privilege that like Bartimaeus, our king calls us into his presence because he wants to hear from us. What a privilege that our king makes room in his kingdom for those who shouldn't belong, bringing to glory all who trust in him. Let's pray. Father God, we indeed uh, hope that as we're here, we know our need for mercy. That rather than thinking with Christ's disciples at this point that what we really need is exaltation and power, we hope and ask you to make it true that what we know we need is mercy from Christ, like Bartimaeus knew, and that the way forward is not by sitting on the side of your throne, but by following you on the way. Bartimaeus got to follow you to see the reason why his blindness could be taken away. As Jesus Christ died on the cross in Jerusalem, being enthroned upon the instrument of his execution, and yet gaining the most glory there as he won the redemption of his people, defeating all his enemies, the devil, sin, and death itself. And wherever we know our need for you to free us from those things most pointedly, we pray that we know that as we call out, Son of David, give us mercy, Jesus Christ says, Bring them to me. I'll hear that one. Fill our hearts with love as we know that Jesus makes room in his kingdom even as we shouldn't belong there. We ask it all for the sake of the Lord Jesus himself. Amen.